Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is June 14th when you're hearing this, June 12th when we're recording. And uh, it's just me and Tammy this week. Tammy, how are you doing? Hey, Jay. I'm doing really good. We had our picnic. We missed oh, yeah. you. I know. How was it? I, I, always, I, always feel, <laughs> I always feel a great deal of FOMO when these things happen. How did it go? <laughs> you should. Yeah, we had several dozen people, uh, listeners, come out with their friends and family. It was great. We had people from Texas, New Jersey, uh, which is basically like coming from Texas. Um, <laughs> Texas <laughs> was, and New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a random sampling. Yeah. Um, it was awesome. And uh, yeah, we had, we ate samosas and drank beer. The smog was gone. It was a perfect Asian American summer camp vibe. How was it? I mean, what was that like the days of the fire stuff? It was difficult yeah. for us to process here in the northern california because we were like oh well you know you get this like kind of sense which i think is silly um and i'm not proud of but you do get like a oh those cute Suck new yorkers yeah those cute new yorkers <laughs> that they're dealing with smoke huh <laughs> you know let me yeah, totally. let me tell you about smoke um how was it was it like uh was it panic inducing was it upsetting did you like have a new perspective on I climate complete- change I know. I complete. I actually mostly missed it because I was in Quebec, which is where the fires were coming from, and there was no smoke. And then I flew into New York, and the smoke was mostly gone. Uh, so you're upstream. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so, so you missed it. So I mostly missed it, but there was a huge panic here, and I do think there was. It was a little. I definitely had West Coast friends and friends in Asia who were like, "Oh, come on, guys." <laughs> I know. I saw the. <laughs> I saw people like kind of freaking out mask wise, you know, yeah. and that was like kind of entertaining yeah. for me to watch where people are like, I saw this tweet and it was like, it showed like people sitting outside and eating and it was like, does nobody care? And I was like, come on, you know, like they're not, this isn't like the oh, pandemic where they can make other people sick. You know? I know. Well, it was it's- funny because we, when we had our picnic in Seoul last year, it basically looked like that. <laughs> but it's like always like that there. So I know, just like... I know, I know. It's like Salt Lake City is kind of like that too, you know? Like they're just cities where sometimes it looks real bad. Mm. Um, and uh, Salt Lake City, I think it's because it sits in like a basin, you know? Have you ever flown oh, yeah, into Salt yeah. Lake City? No, I've never. No. Oh man, some days like flying into Salt I haven't done it a lot in my life, but I've done it enough where some days flying to Salt Lake City, I remember the first time we flew in there when I was like a teenager to go to some national park or another. Um, it was like, I was like, what is going on? You know, like, it felt mm-hmm. like we were like descending into uh, Mumbai or something, you know, like oh, where damn. it was like a level of of uh, smog around the city that was at least new to me. But um, it just happens. They have days like that. But yeah. I think the New York thing was... I don't know. I think it's generally good that people are more aware of fires and everything like that and thinking about it in terms of climate. But uh, yeah, I think it was really bad. I mean, it was actually like the worst in the world or whatever. Yeah, yeah. People couldn't breathe and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And like for Um, people who it's horrible, it's pretty. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the effects of it because like I remember the first day it was really bad around here after we moved here. I was like, you know, I was like, (laughs) whatever, like. Oh no, there's smoke in the air. And then <laughs> within like 10 minutes, I had a pounding headache, you right? know? And then I yeah. was just like, wow, this sucks. I never it's get terrible. headaches. And you if know? you have asthma or like our, like May, our producer, she had had COVID not too long ago. And then this 
you know, the smoke came. So she just feels like her lungs are kind of ravaged for a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not a pleasant thing. They said it was like smoking six cigarettes per day mm-hmm. in a day, which, you know, to me also, I'm just like, well, I've smoked more than six cigarettes in a day, <laughs> but obviously it's not, that's all willing. And the problem with the, the, the difference is that you can't escape it. You know, yeah. it just kind of feels like it's suffocating you. It's yeah. an extremely unpleasant thing. So for, I'm glad that you avoided it. It was similar. It sounds like you did what you were like kind of upstream from Matt, right? And then I felt like, bad. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'll take a plane and a taxi contributing yeah. further to the smog in the city. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember in the great, maybe you weren't, I guess you we're about the same age. So maybe you, I don't think you were in New York there then, but you remember the great black, uh, the blackout oh, yeah. when the power went out in New York city. Yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing. I was living in the city and I went home to see my parents and then, power went out and i had this amazing <laughs> fomo because i was like oh man that must have been so <laughs> yeah, fomo for that yeah, yeah it like, must have been so exciting <laughs> um all right well we uh we have a smorgasbord of topics to discuss today and the first one is that the pew research center has been putting out a whole bunch of stuff about asians you know i think <laughs> that in the past like three months or so do you get these are you like mm-hmm. in the are you are you part of the asian journalist thing where they email you and say Definitely. we have a new study that's been in yeah. parker would you like to see it every single yeah. time i respond and i'm like yes you know and then i and um and it's always pretty interesting i actually think pew does some pretty good research yeah. in this type of thing and uh you know they were looking they of course looked at a lot of the stuff around like uh around affirmative action how people mm-hmm. feel about uh about using race in admissions, which is something we'll talk about a little bit later today. They did stuff about voting patterns and generational voting patterns, which I, for my money, is the most interesting part of all of this, right? Which is, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, you love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is an interesting it's question. Important. Which is, it's yeah, important. Yeah, which is just like, is the yeah. second generation of Asian Americans going to just all be liberals because... Uh, you know, they live in liberal areas, typically, not so much anymore. I mean, it's spreading out. But you know, a lot of this is geographically determined, as ever, as we've talked about on the show. And is a kid who grows up in New York City, for example, or um, California or whatever, and goes through the American education system ends up at a decent college? Are they really going to be like a Republican? You know, like there's so much social pressure against that. And how does that work? Right. Like and that that stuff is interesting. But they this was my favorite one that they've done, which is they they did a study on restaurants. This is much more important, Jay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about it. So according to Pew, um, around seven in 10 of all Asian American (laughs) restaurants or Asian restaurants in the United States serve the food of just three Asian origin groups. Can you guess which three these are? Definitely Chinese. Yeah. Um, okay, so, and then Japanese. But the right. third one is, like, murky to me. Okay, take a guess. Um, Indian. No, no, actually, in fact, Indian food is extremely underrepresented in terms of the share of the Asian American population, I would say. Um, oh, man. Okay, now to I'm going to yeah. open this and look at it with you. <laughs> no, no, no. You have to keep guessing. Oh, okay. I have you to keep guessing. You can't, okay, okay, you, can't, okay. you, can't, you can't cheat after all right, all one right. guess. You okay. know, what type of, what the suspense type of stick, is killing me. What type of stick-to-itiveness um, is that? <laughs> well, that's kind of... Okay, so and not Indian. I had Thai today. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's it. It's Thai. There is a ton of Thai. Yeah. Yeah, it's Thai. Um, And uh, that's that's interesting. Now, 
Uh, these groups together comprise 33% of the U.S. Asian population. Now, that's an interesting number because I don't think that there are that many Thai people in America. And there certainly are not that much Japanese because Japanese right. immigration like effectively ended. Um, so they're really just talking about Chinese people, right, I think here. Um, here are some other takeaways from the analysis, which is based on data from SafeGraph, a company that curates high-precision data. Oh, okay. I, I don't have to read an ad for SafeGraph here. Chinese establishments are by far the most common type of Asian restaurant in the United States. Nearly four in 10 Asian restaurants, 39%, serve Chinese food, which has a long history in the United States. By comparison, Chinese Americans account for about a quarter of the Asians living in the United States, right? Um mm-hmm. Now, like okay. these types of like, oh, well, it's 40%, but 20, they're only 24%. Like, I don't know, like whatever those types of gaps are not particularly interesting. But I did find it interesting that it was like Chinese, Japanese, and Thai food, right? Like Thai, yeah. Thai I guess Thai food is extremely- Thai is so ubiquitous and it is weird because you find it in really, and it's not, you know, it's usually not very good, like in the places that you I know, I know. where Thai people don't live. But like I New would York have thought City, there'd be example. more like like New York City, unless you go deep into Queens. Yeah. Uh, There's like, like Filipino th- and Indian, I thought would be higher. Okay, so here is the we. There's okay, so many. We're gonna get people. to that. We're gonna get to that soon, right? But um, I think Thai food and. and especially, you know, and it's an interesting thing where obviously this just depends on if your immigrant group comes over here and starts restaurants or not, right? Like that's basically mm-hmm. what it is. And that, uh, you know, I think that Thai food had this moment that every, you know, every Asian cuisine has a moment, right? Like when Selena Door, for example, came out, then Vietnamese food had this moment, right? And there's people that really, and by, the, by moment, I mean, obviously like some, you know, kind of like a lot of attention in the food presses and then a lot of imposter type restaurants that pop up every now and then and then people talk about it a lot right it was like Sichuan food for a while was like that right yeah Um, maybe it's still like that uh but yeah Thai food has somehow like become the one of those that sustains it it's not a moment (laughs) it's It's a moment it's It's an era (laughs) (laughs) I know and the weirdest part about Thai food and I you know I don't know like we should have somebody on the show to explain all this but the thing about Thai food I've found most interesting is that when I lived in Los Angeles I lived very close to Thai town right Mm -hmm. which was uh, the part of LA that is um, a lot of Thai restaurants and I would say that like for on average that the Thai restaurants in Thai town are five times better than like any other Thai restaurant that I've been to in the United States. Like, what about just... in Portland? My two favorite Thai places are in Portland. In Port- oh, I know the place you're talking about in Portland. Um, hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's more like, I don't know. I don't like to use this word, but it's more like kind of authentic. Like authentic. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have a bunch of bells and whistles on it, you know, and it's not like, like I, the place that you're talking about, Portland, I don't remember the name. but they have That place is gone now. Pock Pock. But oh. there's there's this new generation that are more like what you would No, get no, I've been to the other one you're talking oh, about. Oh, like I yeah. like, okay, Not so my favorite are Eam and Hot Yai. I think I've they're like Eam. extraordinary. Yeah, Eam is one where I it's think so- I waited two hours for my oh, food. Oh, Jesus. Okay. That, what? That no, right? no, no. No, it was like we ordered outside and sat outside for a while. It was during the pandemic. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was my friend's wedding. But right. uh, the food was really good. <laughs> the um, food is really good there. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, uh, but, so you were in Thai town. Yeah, and I find it interesting that like Thai food, I think, has two forms. One of which is like kind of in the same way that Americanized. There's Americanized Chinese food, obviously. There's also mm-hmm. Americanized Thai food. And yeah. 
the Thai food that is Thai Thai food is much is similar, but it's just much more has a lot more flavor, spice, totally. fresh ingredients, and stuff like that. That's yeah. something we should mark for a future episode because I don't actually yeah. know when why Thai food is one that kind of sticks. Out yeah, like no, that. I th- I agree because there's like we've seen those articles on like the Moonies and sushi and stuff like that. And right, but yeah. What's this? What's the story with Thai? And and now we're I think as you're saying like we're seeing more specific like regional Thai restaurants pop up. Like you can now be like, oh, I'm going to go to like an Isan restaurant and stuff like right. that. But right. that seems fairly new. But like in every like just nameless suburb, you can get like really terrible pad thai now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like somehow pad thai became an American staple. <laughs> yeah, right? it's like chow mein. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. It or it's kind of like pizza or whatever, right? Yeah. Or like or spaghetti, where um, it is become and I don't know, it's really interesting because I don't really there's nothing about pad thai that when you think about it would necess- that would like kind of set itself up for that type of. Easy adoption. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would it be that pad thai was that popular? I don't like pad thai, so maybe that's why. Uh, All right. Um, Here's the last part of that that I'll talk about. Actually, there's one other big topic I want to bring to you. That's why we're talking about this, actually. But the last thing is Indian and Filipino establishments account for a relatively small share of Asian restaurants. Indian and Filipino restaurants account for 7% and 1% of all Asian restaurants in the United States, respectively, even though Indian and Filipino Americans account for nearly 40% of that the is Asians nuts. in the United States combined. So Filipino, that's Yeah, that, that seems nuts. nuts to me. Indian restaurants being only 7% of all Asian restaurants in the United and States. And Filipinos restaurants are 1%? 1%? Like... In right. Washington State, there's so many Filipinos. I'm like, oh, this this sounds so weird. Well, do you? I buy that, but I will say that my lived experience is different because uh, here in the Bay Area, there's a lot of Filipino restaurants, yeah. especially in South right? San Francisco, and they're all quite good. But I think that the reason is because Filipino people do not come to the United States to open restaurants. To do restaurants, right? Yeah. Right. Right. right, 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 yeah. Right, it's like... They come over to be a nurse or they work in the medical fields or mm-hmm. they have like specific OFW type of totally jobs. And it's not really opening restaurants except in these dense enclaves. But they're, yeah. you know, like the dense enclaves are mostly in California, you know, they're in California. I think some in Texas, yeah. right? Um, some parts of the East Coast. Washington but like, State has some. Have yeah. you ever, I don't, can't remember a Filipino restaurant in New York City, really. Um outside of like a couple right like yeah. it's definitely not well there's really like there. more okay so there's some in queens that are like for like new immigrants right but then i think there's now especially i feel like among filipinos like the second gen right like new filipino cuisines right right happening. we have one here called yeah. senior seasig right which is like a kind of food trucky like new thing that people like right like is uh, it people... delicious yeah it's pretty good i mean we had a whole Discord conversation over about actually we've had several about because we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are Filipino mm-hmm. and about like all the best restaurants Filipino restaurants in the Bay Area mm-hmm. and for our Bay Area picnic actually I went to this place Phil Lamb which was great and ordered oh yeah way oh, yeah. too much food like enough for like Amazing. forty people or something and there's like. <laughs> 20 people showed up and so I brought it all home and I just ate these chicken skewers for about a week it was delicious <laughs> it's delicious oh my god that's amazing. yeah so Fil- Filipino restaurants are very underrepresented I think I used yeah. to I used to eat at one almost every single day when I was a teacher in the San Fernando Valley it was like delicious oh dang but I do think um you know I think that one 
especially the way that they cooked food it made me gain like 20 pounds like on its <laughs> by itself i think but, yeah oh um, the last part of it is basically of this study was talking about places that serve more than one type of asian food oh kind of this like second nice. thing and that's what i actually want to talk about today which is like what do you make of this now right because we're in this we're very strange position um and i was having this conversation actually with this uh with this woman that she, her kid and my kid do skateboarding class together. She's mm-hmm. Chinese American. She grew up in Southern California and, um, you know, she and I are about the same age. And so we have the same and kind of like similar immigrant type of mentality. Mm-hmm. And so we have like a certain list of things that we don't do, you know, like fusiony Asian food or whatever. Okay. Right. But it was, I don't know. I, it got me thinking about it. That's why I wanted to talk about this restaurant thing, because it's like, are we like, like, we're kind of at this place where most of the things that open up now, right? Like you're talking about these places in Portland, for example, where there are large white, of course there has to be because it's Portland, but there's (laughs) like large white constituencies, right? And that there is like kind of this dismissiveness, I think amongst a certain type of like 1.5 gen Asian American that's just like, Oh, all those places, you know, especially if they have like a white chef, for example. But, um, I don't know. Where do you where do you stand on this like sort of fusion? Wait, so what are the stuff? yeah, what are the blends that Pew has logged as like the most popular? Oh, they were mostly talking about places I think that are like Asian restaurants, you know, that you might Oh, find just like a, like the buffet, yeah. like yeah. yeah. I feel like yeah. those are all run by Koreans cuz the Koreans They're are like They're all run by Koreans. Like hot yeah. Thai sushi buffet or whatever, you know, and do your it's parents like, really have, like disgusting and dried out. Do your parents have like my parents have this like uh thing where if uh if it's a if it's a restaurant mm-hmm. of a different ethnic group but it's run by koreans they won't mm-hmm. go they won't <laughs> yeah. be like, oh that's a fall place run by koreans you know that's hilarious they're almost like purists in their purism okay. here but that's like incredible. um well like what do you do you get down right. with this like kind of like you know like all this sort of inventiveness that's around it the second you know like uh uh, yeah. And it's, the big example, of course, would be like Roy Choi's uh, Kogi Taco. Kogi right? Taco, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Or um, um, a lot of stuff David Chang does, right? Where it's like kind of yeah. like a, a newer twist on with like traditional Korean ingredients, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I'm open. I'm not snobbish about it. I mean, I I think like it's just if it's the, like those two places in Portland, I feel like are doing a different thing where it's like we're going to be hyper authentic, you know, right? so right. that also has its like own annoying thing. Yeah, yeah, so for sure. I don't know. But yeah. I think like I, I was just thinking about like my friend here is really into like new Korean cooking or whatever. And I think there's these chefs that are trying to do like Korean, like blending Korean and French methods or whatever stuff like that, you know? And I'm like, I guess I'm open to it, but my limitation is I'm very cheap, Jay. So I'm not going to go to like really expensive places. That's you being bad though. Cause the other side of this is (laughs) like the authentic part of it where people are like, Oh, I just really want authentic. There's like this Mm -hmm. sort of price thing loaded into that. Right. Where they're kind of just being like, I don't want to pay for Cause that's like, I have the same thing. And, you know, I was thinking about it recently where it's like, if it's, if things are too expensive, then it can't be authentic, you know? And it's like, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. I see, it's like, I, I don't want to go to some like, you know, like second gen Jajangmyeon place where they, you know, don't give you enough, like any type of like panjan or anything like that. And 
and they put like whatever truffle oil on some fries and they serve it with like something like that and i just get yeah, mad yeah. <laughs> but then i just think like that's so it's like really like weirdly internally racist in a way you know being like yeah. no like you will not make as you much money as cheap and dirty <laughs> yeah, or whatever <laughs> I actually went to a Korean place yesterday that opened near my place in Brooklyn recently. And uh, it's actually pretty good. It's called Bom, B-O-M, like spring. And it's like basically like a Korean, it's like basic Korean dishes, but they're like slightly elevated, I guess. Elevated. Oh, see, there goes that internal racism. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. No, so I'm (laughs) I'm into this place. I'm like, because you'll get like a kimchi pajeon and it'll be like a little bit nicer than you would get at a, you know, at a Korean speaking Korean restaurant. Okay. But it still tastes good. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's not a fusion place, but it definitely is like ready for the white customers. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's a a distressing (laughs) part is that like a lot of it you feel like. That's like the kind of weird, you know, you're like, well, I don't want to go into, like, sometimes I do want to go into a place with, you know, nice tables and everything like that. That feels a little <laughs> bit more modern. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, there was a, fr- there's a French and Korean place in Seattle for a while. Like somebody started like three of them or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Korean French fusion. My parents really liked it. Here they in Berkeley, okay. we have a place called the Berkeley Social Club. And it's okay. like a brunch place that a lot of like kind of, it's really expensive. So I don't know why students oh. go to it so much, but okay. anytime you go on a weekend, you'll see like, you know, like kind of fraternity dudes sitting or, you know, sorority girls kind of sitting around and having their brunch meetings. And that's like a c- real Korean fusion thing where it's like, you know, Benedict, eggs Benedict, with oh, with kimchi like, and stuff yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that. And that's, okay. that's a little bit too far for me. Yeah. I but just I, can't wait in line. I won't wait in line. For, for Korean anything. food, for oh, anything, yeah, yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. Except for the place. Apparently, I waited two hours in for Portland. It. Yeah, no, in Portland, yeah, but that was pretty good. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Portland is weirdly the breeding ground for all this sort of stuff. You know, it's like mm-hmm. all food takes have to originate. All cultural food takes have to originate in Portland because the I'm restaurants really are. Sure, what's up with it? The restaurants well, the, are so good. My the thing food about is it, so good yeah. in Portland. Like, you know that place that does, in Portland that's very famous? I don't remember the name, but they do, like, Hainanese chicken and rice. You know, I think it's oh, called yeah, Noms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, yeah, uh, that, it's, like, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There's, like, an Indian place, I think, in southeast Portland that I went to that you go in and you, like, roll your eyes because they're playing loud music and they have, like, uh, you know, they they have like silver trays it's all white people inside and it's like mm-hmm. you know clearly for like a type of portland customer and then you eat the food and you're like this is delicious <laughs> i know i don't i also we this came up at the picnic but i always say that portland is the best pizza city in the world in the nation I've like never, i think the portland, pizza, portland is so pizza so freaking good yeah anyway, yeah portland. but it's like it's weird because i think it's, it's like because it's so implicitly or so explicitly for white people because it's the only people who live in portland and then like they somehow are oh making really good food so then you have to kind of take it a little bit more seriously than you would take, <laughs> to take some other endeavors. now i'm like then, is it my own then, internalized racism that makes yeah, me think it's good in portland people get like fucked up in the head about it oh, you know man. um if somebody if some white guy was like i've cooked the, <laughs> the best type of gym 
in America and it was from Portland, <laughs> I would like instinctively hate it. But then I would know in my head that if I went and I ate it, I'd be like, you know what? You would love point. it. <laughs> yeah, this is fucking excellent, dude. <laughs> Whereas even here in the Bay oh, Area, yeah. some white person was like, I've created the best cabbage in America. I was just like, probably not, you know, and also I'm not paying <laughs> I'm not paying $60 oh for you to like melt some cheese on some like mushy totally. short ribs, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I don't understand yeah. it. I, I, I don't really get why it's like all the restaurants there yeah, are so good. But um, yeah. Okay. So we have concluded, you know, that was a very long conversation with no particular conclusion except to say <laughs> that um, I don't know. Some surprises just, here. We should just let things happen. But uh, and I but it's just not for me, you know. Like the more fusiony and stuff it gets, like I just kind of want a bunch of panchan for Korean food and some rice. And, that they don't charge for. Yeah, and like I don't really need to have inc- like interesting ingredients in the food, right? And they're like, this is like made with Neiman Ranch chicken or something. I'm like, <laughs> I don't. Like, what is that? You know, like, it's okay. <laughs> you don't have to convince me. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the second thing that we're going to talk about today, which is uh, I, I, I kind of like balked on whether or not we should talk about this at all because we've talked about it a lot. But I pledge to you, Tammy, that this will be the last time we talk about <laughs> it. And I do think we should talk about it in the sense that we have talked about it a lot in the past. I think it's something our listeners are interested in. And this is obviously yeah. the Supreme Court sometime this week or next week is going to make their decision on affirmative action. I think that people are pretty like there's no real suspense on what they're going to say. Like, I think they're clearly going to rule with the plaintiffs and students for fair admission And I wanted to ask you one question off the bat, which I think was interesting, which was just that, like, do you feel like there has been like a robust defense of affirmative action in the American press over the past couple of weeks here? Like when you'd be expecting it, like, do you feel like there has been a lot of clamoring and a lot of, uh, you know, not clamoring, but a lot of like Mm -hmm. discourse about this, right? Um, or do you feel, because I get the sense personally that like it's been extremely muted and I don't know why, but I want to know what your thoughts on that. Well, okay. So I think this, like I have a more overarching thing about the Supreme Court, which is just right now that there's this like anticipation fatigue, like just generally on right. all of the court decisions. Like I wrote about this, a case that they, was decided last week on striking, which is like, could have been a very, fairly significant labor case that also had like quite little attention paid to it. Um, you know, I think like that Alabama voting case that came down as kind of a surprise, actually preserving some of the um, provisions of the the Voting Rights Act was was sort of a surprise. So so I think like across the board, maybe there isn't as much stuff being said like there was for the Roe decision for Dobbs. Um, right. But it's interesting. I so there's a judge, a retired judge now um, who was quite prominent in New York called Shira Shinlin, and she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the affirmative action case. And I found that really fascinating as like a specimen specimen of analysis in this case, because the entire point of the op-ed was we should do our best to preserve affirmative action. And it's so important. And I, he, I as a successful white woman judge, um, feel that, you know, white women should stand up for minorities and women right in this litigation but it's really interesting because she doesn't mention that the plaintiffs are asian 
Right. Like the right. entire context of the the case is like white people right. against people of color. So, so in a way, I thought that opinion was sort of like emblematic of a kind of op-ed that I've seen recently anticipating the case. Um, But would I call that robust? Probably not. That said, I feel like maybe it's just because like you and other people, like the analyses have kind of been done. And now it just seems like we've been waiting for this for like years. Yeah, I feel that way too. I just, I just think that when something feels inevitable, like Dobbs didn't feel inevitable. It took everyone by surprise, right? Um, that maybe there is a little bit of court fatigue. And it was interesting to see, you know, that the, you know, Kavanaugh and and, um, and Roberts cut on the voting rights case. That's a thing. Right. Yeah. They came out and they gave what would, I think a lot of people are very excited about a decision about, you know, how political districts are drawn. Right? Yeah. That has ramifications in a lot of other states, including North Carolina, where I grew up, where basically right. the GOP has been running wild doing illegal shit for the past 20 years and that mm-hmm. like every single thing gets challenged in court every single thing ends up <laughs> they they end up losing in every single th- case and then yes. they just do it again you know like it's yeah. like uh like it's 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 a it, they're like incorrigible i think is the right mm-hmm. word yeah. and so um you know i i don't know i just think that there's like uh you see that and then you know you, people are like well don't 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 kind of underestimate the for, for court. Me. And then there was yeah. all this conspiratorial stuff basically saying like, oh, oh well, really? the court was just doing this so that they would throw people off the scent for when they end affirmative oh, oh, action. And I'm like, no, they don't do it that way. You know, like they're not sort of thinking about it. If I don't anything, think it's, really though? I mean, I don't think it's throwing off the scent, but don't you think that there is a consideration of like political capital? I don't know because I think I that think the, the judges think that way. I don't think they really care about the affirmative mm-hmm. action case. I think they would care okay. in terms I mean, of fair. Dobbs. I just think yeah, that they yeah. think that probably most people in America agree with you know getting rid of race as a consideration and fair enough, and yeah. um and that there won't be the same outcry, which is the part that's been interesting to me, right? Because mm-hmm. affirmative action is a extremely emotionally charged program in terms of the way in which it has def- been defended in the past, right? Um, and the way in which it is sort of held up as one of the real tentpoles of progressive politics. And I think that it has been interesting to see that some of the defense that one would expect is not quite there, at least in my opinion, leading up. Now, it could be that the decision comes out and there's 5 billion things we don't hear about a different thing for like five days. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that's true because everybody knows what the court is going to decide yeah right? i think and, that's part of it yeah but I so just, you don't you didn't feel at all hopeful after the alabama voting decision came down that maybe no, actually I did. okay yeah no, but, but about I, the affirmative action case no like, no no, okay, no, no, okay. no 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 because no, i do no. feel like a lot of people felt a glimmer oh really well i think it's sort of look i i think that getting two in the heads of these justices is a difficult thing yeah but i think and to kind of think of themselves uh, to think of them almost as like a as like taylor swift or something like that where you have like a very pr <laughs> pr sensitive superstar that is making decisions you know and right. like kind of like dumping their boyfriend because he listens to come town or whatever <laughs> like you know like i think it's a little bit i think it's a little bit of a fool's errand but i will say that for me it just sort of reiterated what i think is the actual composition of the court right which is that Kavanaugh, despite, you know, uh, everything around his, his, um, being a rapist. Yeah. Yeah. Despite an alleged rapist, right. His, his, uh, 
the way that he's going to decide cases is like pretty standard, right? I think like I don't think he is an activist in the same way that I think Alito, for example, or um, Amy Corney Barrett are activist judges. Oof, or, yeah, so scary, right. yeah. And that um, I wasn't really that surprised that he would that he would vote in this way. Right. Or even, hmm. you know, I, Clarence Thomas, another obvious, I I don't even know what to call him at this point. Right. Like, like it's not even activist. It's just like votes for sale. I, guess, I know. Right? Seriously. Right. Yeah. Um, so I thought that, that sort of restored it, but I don't, I do not think in my sense was that like for them, the big thing was always going to be Dobbs. Right. And after that, they would just settle into yeah. like, just kind of trying to be like normal court in some sort of way with like some people on the court who are like not trying to be normal at all. And that, um, but I don't think that this case for is this uh, isn't the one that's yeah yeah like this one is not one yeah. like that like the voting rights case where it is so flagrant right like I would say like this one probably given the past case law that it mm-hmm. is would be very difficult for the Supreme Court even like a moderate Supreme Court I think to make a to extend the decisions that they made in Fisher and Fisher too. Uh, yet again, you know, like, mm-hmm. I think it would just be difficult. Uh, and so I don't really even, exp- I don't expect. Yeah, anything there's different. so little left, right, of the firmament right. of this policy. That, right. I mean, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's it's quite terrible, actually, what's happening. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what, how colleges are able to address this moving forward. Well, I think they'll be fine in a lot of ways because I think they'll just do a lot of workarounds, you know, like there is a lot of conversation about some like the some of the SFFA clients who were mm-hmm. kept secret before. And I talked That's the to the plaintiff Ed, group, right? The, yeah, the plaintiff led groups, by the conservatives. Yeah. yeah, right. I talked to Ed Bloom, who is the head of all of this, right? He's sort of the conservative legal activist back when I was writing about this topic. And he, I was like, why are you keeping these people secret? You know, and he was like, well, Abigail Fisher went through hell and I don't want these kids to go through hell. And it's like, yeah, Abigail Fisher kind of did go through hell, but she also like, you know, she brought hell I'm on sorry. herself. Yeah, she she was. A, if you want to make a gigantic <laughs> waiting into, Supreme yeah. Court case around yourself, then like, you know, like that's what's going to happen. Um, but in the past week, a lot of them have started coming out in public, yeah, including one guy who said that uh, I had a 1590 SAT. I didn't get into UC Berkeley. This is Wong. I don't kid, remember I the name. His last name it, was, long, yeah. it was all through yeah. social media. But um, the response to that from a lot of people was UC Berkeley doesn't have affirmative action because the state of California outlawed it with Prop 209. Mm-hmm. And like that, I think is technically true, right? Mm-hmm. But like I find that that type of argument is like really strange. And I think it's indicative of the way in which people have found themselves in a really tight corner in some of this concept, uh, in some of this stuff, right? Wait, walk through that. Like, why is that weird? Well, because the University of California system does not have affirmative action, technically speaking and legally speaking, but it does a lot of things to uh, create the diversity that they want on campus. Now, does that lead to the types of diverse campuses that reflect the state of California? Um, At some of the UCs, yes, right? Like, you know, like some of the UCs that are not the big flagship competitive ones have very large percentages of, say, Latino students that do reflect a large Latino population in California. Um, The black population in California is not that large. I think it's about 10%, right? But, um, you know, I think that most of these elite schools would probably want a number higher than that. And they generally Mm -hmm. don't have a number higher than that. But what happened post 209 was that black enrollment dropped off a cliff at yeah. UCLA and Cal. 
And right. so what the state, that. what the schools did was that they created workarounds. You know, they used mm-hmm. uh, different proxies. They used income bands that didn't really work because they were the poor Asians. But they started using like stuff like, uh, you know, what school did you go to, and were you mm-hmm. did yeah. you do well within that school? Did you? Um, they would do a lot of recruiting of students early on and say like, hey, you should come to a UC school. You know, like you just have to do this, this, and this. Right? They right. they started bringing um, they started expanding their community college transfer systems which brought in obviously more diverse students from different types of economic backgrounds and that like uh, and that they created a big infrastructure of diversity equity and inclusion even though not by that name right mm-hmm. a lot of these institutions especially the competitive flagship ones and that those groups do work to try and increase diversity, racial diversity on campus. And like all those things are true, right? Like it's, they're very proud of the fact that they were able to basically circumvent 209. And so I find it a little bit strange that the response to some of this stuff is just like, oh, they didn't do anything, you know? Like it doesn't exist. Like all that work, like it doesn't exist. Uh, And it's like this weird discursive space where like you just deny the things that you celebrate in another context. And I think that like the workarounds are good, right? I don't think that there should be campuses that have no black students on them <laughs> yeah. in a state like California, especially a state institution. But um, like, how do you, and I do think a lot of universities after this decision will start looking at the UC system and how they dealt with it, or I'm sure they already have. But are you at saying it. that those programs now could potentially be in danger because they're essentially effectuating affirmative action? Yeah, I think that they're going to get sued. I mean, so a that's lot of them quite are gonna get scary. Sued I mean, maybe yeah. that's also part of this deflection because it's like, those are good programs. Like, we want that sort of working around to happen. Right. But uh, they, I, I know what they, you mean that it like discursively, maybe there's a little bit of like disingenuousness in the response right. to the plaintiffs. But at the same time, like, dude, like... <laughs> we should right. have this, right? So Right. No, um, well, that's what I'm yeah. saying is like, if you yeah. want to say like, we want to address this problem you shouldn't deny that these programs exist and that they're effective but they're not affirmative action i mean but but what you were saying is important like they aren't technically the affirmative action that is trying to be attacked in this lawsuit right right it's not like uh, that that's important explicit racial preferences right but yeah they are implicit racial preferences in a lot of well, ways. Well, okay, right? but Ed Bloom, don't listen to this and attack that next. <laughs> oh, no, that's like, definitely going to... I don't know. I, I guess mean, that's I just, the problem, like, right? right? So, yeah. Right. I think about it and I think about... I think I've talked about this on the show before, but I you know, I applied to a job at Cal Journalism School and I didn't feel... They made me... Part of it was filling <laughs> out a... You are so upset about this. ...diversity statement. And so then you think, okay, the school has no affirmative action, then why is there a diversity statement that people are being asked to fill out that the explicit question is, what will you do to to uh, increase diversity on campus or contribute to diversity on campus? You know, like, obviously that's an... Aff- but I that's don't... Th- form- I, that's not affirmative action, though. You don't think that's affirmative action? I don't. No. Well, what would you define as affirmative action, then? I mean, I think like, well, what is being attacked in this lawsuit? Um, that type of program, I think, you know, like sort of racial preference or as a general but thing. It's nobody, not clear to nobody me that is... that is a racial preference. I mean, in other words, like, I mean, I think they should have hired you because I think you're great. But like, I don't, I think like that kind of thing is also just like these sort of pro forma things that happen in a lot of hiring programs where they like basically tr- are trying to make you indicate that you've thought about an issue and right. that you're not a jerk. And I don't think that right. that rises to the level of this kind of thing. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, nobody's allowed I mean, it's to have in quota danger. systems. Like, yeah, yeah but know. the quotas went away a long time ago, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, though that's what I mean. Yeah. So it's not quotas. It's always this kind yeah. of like soft push, you know, that yeah. nobody really explicitly says because yeah, it would be illegal. But um, I don't know. I My general take on all of this is that I think the schools will all be fine. Um, and I think they'll still basically do what they're doing and they'll just, you know, develop a type of double speak around it, which, you know, I don't know, like you can get super annoyed by it, but I think that it would, um, I don't know. I think it'll be okay. And then the last thing I wanted to say about it was just that, like, I don't know, like what I, I, I wanted to sort of ask your, or I wanted to ask your opinion on it, which is like, it's been kind of ugly, you know, and it makes me wonder, uh, a lot about where people are, where young people are. And, um, I don't know, like it's, it, I think this is kind of a depressing moment, uh, in terms of, do you mean in terms of like racial solidarities and class recognition and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just like, I guess I find myself sometimes wondering about the actual, if the place where a lot of people hope that we are in terms of solidarity is delusional, you know, and that it seems like this type of conversation brings it out. And for me, I will say that personally, I just think like, I think it's really clear that these schools discriminate against Asian kids. I think that's really bad, you know, and it's clear that like the norms of liberal discourse on this try and take a lot of, Asian kids, many of whom are lower middle class or working class, and they try and like spin them all off as being rich kids. I think that's bad. You know, like those mm-hmm. are bad things that happen. Um, and I don't, f- and I feel like saying that out loud for three years now has like, you know, been come at some cost, you know, in terms of social censure or whatever. For you. Yeah. Now it's hard yeah. for me to say. I mean, I have a fucking staff writer at the New Yorker, you know, like it's like <laughs> like you're doing fine, but yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah. But in terms of like my interactions with other with progressive Asian American people who are high profile has really suffered, you know, and I think that they sort of see me in terms of being a reactionary. And I think that that type of uh, like I'm not saying it to really have anybody feel sorry for me personally because i don't want to mm-hmm. talk to those people anyway but i'm just saying that, but I, think what that, does there, that I think there's a line you know um on this and i think that part of the line did necessitate you to basically just be like i'm okay with some asian students being discriminated against you know i think that that and like in terms of like the intra asian american discourse that that was where we ended up and i think it's really fucked up you know like i just think it's like kind of sad um, that people felt that way and that it indicates to me at least a lack of feeling of support that if you come out against this stuff that you're going to be supported by the broader kind of liberalist media establishment or you know broader meet liberals establishment in general and um, I think that that is a extremely red pilling type of situation for a lot of people. But you were also telling me that you, you feel that over the course of these years reporting on this, that you think more journalists have actually come around to your opinion. So it, I mean, hasn't there sort of been a change in that? It's not so monolithic as when you started. Yeah, uh, a little bit. I think there's been a little bit of budging. But, but overall, you think it's still, I mean, I think that, okay, so I think that, I mean, we've, I guess we've talked about this a little bit before, but I think what's very hard about it is like, you know, there's individual grievances, and then there's policy decisions. And like, you know, no matter what 
policy arena we're talking about, like there's always going to be cases that like make us very uncomfortable and sad and are hard, you know? And I think this is just, it's the pain of the situation is like, so let's say there's like whatever elite school and you look at the percentages of Asian students and it's high, right? Like for like, as compared to the population. So it's like, well, so is there actually discrimination happening there? Like the answer could be yes on an individual basis. And yet like the percentage looks good. So I think that's very hard. But then, yeah, you see these like litigation documents and it's the Harvard people are like Asian kids are automatons with no like feelings or vibes or like passions. And that's like obviously really horrible to read. But on a policy level, like what do you do about that? And then you have these disgusting characters like the Ed Blums of the world, like taking advantage of this. And so it's I think it's like I think it's a very like twisting thing for a lot of Asian people. Yeah, yeah. And I. I just think that, I don't know, it's like a big mess. And I think that there's a large percentage of people who feel no conflict about this at all. And then there's a large percentage of people who say that they feel conflict, but probably don't, you know? And I do, <laughs> I do like kind of. <laughs> You're like mistrusting them. <laughs> I know. And there's I, a I, lot of mistrust on both sides now. <laughs> I just, yeah. It's like, I, yeah. I remember as like, I, Four years ago, when I started writing about it, I remember I wrote this. I did this informal survey of people I knew, and not one person felt like these schools weren't discriminating against Asian kids. But none of them was. A lot of people wouldn't say it out loud. Oh, really? Yeah. And I don't think that that type of situation has ended. And I think that it's like the implication of that type of situation is basically like, well, then you're like a white ally you know um functionally right and like i think that a lot of people would have a hard time coming to grips with that or even admitting it but that's sort of functionally what you do or you say none of this matters right but i don't know i think it's pretty clear that a lot of it does kind of matter right it's access into the most elite spaces in the country um and like you know i don't know like tammy you and i have been pretty successful in our careers we went to these schools too you know and like, I don't like if I had gone to the University of North they Carolina, you, right? Greensboro, for example, which is a fine school. But if I had gone to like UNC Greensboro, would I be in this position? No, absolutely not. Zero chance, you know, mm-hmm. and like, I, I just find it very disingenuous when people be like, oh, well, that's a great school and you would be fine and be like, yeah, I would be right. fine at some level. But like, would I be in this space, which is what these right, kids want? Right, because we're talking about know? elite access. Yeah. Right, right. And so... um I don't know. I've I've found the whole discourse around it recently to be extremely dispiriting. And I'm glad that it's over or it's going (laughs) to be over because like I personally just don't want to talk about it anymore because it's like frustrating, you know, like, um, but I, yeah, I do think the one change has been that like one's take on it is not as indicative of one's entire politics as maybe Mm -hmm. it used to be, or maybe that's just hopeful thinking on my half. I I think that's right. I think, Yeah. I, I think I think it has shifted. I mean, your work probably has contributed to that. And there's been other reporting as well that I think like has shown, you know, just kind of looking at the facts of the case, like it's right. quite uncomfortable. I think to me, it also mirrors some of the rhetorical and solidarity issues we were seeing, like during the periods of the pandemic where there were a lot of physical attacks on Asian Americans, right? Because right? Asian people were also feeling like, oh, well, do other people of color groups in America even care what happens to Asian people and stuff. So I I think there's that, it seems like in a number of these like big issue areas where this is coming up again and again. 
I know. It's just, I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of Asian people of different political leanings, you know, and um, the ones that are more hard edged right now who are celebrating this upcoming decision. Um, I don't know. I think that my general fear at the beginning that this would become some sort of like massive movement and that people would be all converted. It has not come to pass. Yeah. You know, like I, I think I was wrong about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I don't think that the, I do think that the people who are celebrating will probably have a greater political engagement than the people who are kind of just like, eh, you know, like I don't even want to think about it. And I think it's just become harder to, like the, that, that, that fundamental question that you explained, which was like, do people in America, especially liberals, care about discrimination and attacks against Asian American or Asian people in America? And the answer is obviously no. You know, like I have like nobody really thinks that, you know, and like uh, like that just seems to be kind of like the conclusion that one draws from all of this discourse. Of these years. Yeah. 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 And th- that's like that more than anything is really red pilling for people. And I don't, I have a very hard time judging people, you know, like that's basically the theme of the show, which is like our deep ambivalence (laughs) to many things said over many words. But um, I just have a hard time judging some of the people who might draw that conclusion and then say, fuck it. Like we just have to protect our own interests. You know, like it's Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. like, of course they're going to think that way. Um, Like what, what, what evidence do they have that like whatever goodwill that they put into these types of things will be repaid back to them. Now you can ask them to just do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it seems yeah. like a lot to ask of somebody, you know? I will um, say that I think a lot of other interstitial like racial groups in this country feel similarly, you know, like for we, sure. We, right. We've talked about like coming out of nine 11 and that the Islamophobia and the regional discrimination from that period has not right. ended. And they feel right. that way. Indigenous people feel that way. Latinos feel that way. Right. Say, and, and I'm not saying black people don't feel that way, but obviously the black white racial dynamic is a thing that is the most clearly articulated in this right. country. So right. um, anyway, it's yeah. Yeah. That's why we're doing the show. I know the, the, the question <laughs> yeah. of like, I think like in terms of the Asian people feeling like they're ignored or underrepresented in America, like I always just think like, that's true, but it's worse for the Latino. <laughs> I keep going back to that too. And like, yeah, there's a lot so more of them than there, just there's like, a lot more than, than there are yeah. of us. You know? Yeah. And we have more and TV like, shows. I know. When's the last time <laughs> like, the a lot, like when's the last time a Latino won like or Latino tel- movie or whatever won an, won Os- an, won an Oscar. Right yeah. Or that was like a huge hit. Like yeah. um when's the last time they like they didn't they don't have like a oh, you know, this is our crazy rich age. I know. <laughs> I know. It's why I mean it's like it's actually yeah, really it's, disturbing. It's, it is. Yeah. It's it's weird, but I think part of it is that Spanish language uh media is its own like, you know, ro- big, robust type sure, of yeah. thing. But at the same time, it's like, well, we have you know, that like, too. Yeah. yeah you know, it's, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's very oh, hard man. to sometimes to hear people bitch about this stuff. And I'm just, and then turn around and just be like, listen, like, there's a lot more people who are underrepresented <laughs> here. 50% of the population. Or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. like, yeah. like, you don't even hear their complaints about it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's right, how right. bad it is. It's like Asians have gotten to a certain point in media or whatever, yeah. where at least in I academia, know, where these types of complaints get heard, at least, mm-hmm. even if nobody cares about them in a ignore them like you actually Mm -hmm. hear it you know but uh it's just not true for for them so yeah i think that's a good 
that's a good uh moment of perspective <laughs> to end all this but i don't know i just like i get I like I, I found myself profoundly pessimistic about this type of stuff mm. for the past like six months yeah. or so i don't know why but um like i don't i don't really see what how how it's gonna get better you know yeah. um like we thought like maybe when trump goes away it'll it's like kind of nothing's changed <laughs> You know, it's like still... I guess like the one question coming out of the affirmative action thing, we I guess we've probably said a lot of this stuff before. It's fine though, but it's just if we move towards more of like a class based, you know, affirmative action type thing, um, could that make space for class based solidarities? And you know, not to be too reductive about it, but obviously that's a position that we have argued for on this show before. Um, I think it's an open question. I mean, all of this stuff just depends on who's going to organize around it so yeah yeah i don't i i think uh the vast majority of americans are very supportive of a type of affirmative action program that helps poor people yeah. broadly they are not supportive of one that just considers race right and i think that um forcing universities and the right wing in some ways to who have been arguing for class-based affirmative action for years as a way, to, as a proxy to say, well, we shouldn't do race, we should do class. Like those types of things should really be um, prevalent and that they should be put out. And I think that like, uh, but I, I don't think that it ends up really satisfying the way in which a lot of liberal people think about this, which is yeah. that like they don't want a restructuring of the, access to the, the elites system. in America. <laughs> what they want is for it to look diverse enough for them to feel comfortable. It is the yeah. same thing that happens at private schools here in the Bay Area, where if you walk into any private school, extremely expensive private school classroom, it will be the most like kind of like skin deep, diverse right. classroom that you will walk into. If you walk into classrooms in Oakland, it's going to be all Latino or all black or all yeah. white, you know? Um, if you walk around Berkeley, like there's not that many black kids in these classrooms. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just true. And then if you go to like Head Royce or something like that, or like Prospect Sierra, some of these very expensive, uh, not Prospect what is I that? forget what the name is. Like these are very expensive private schools oh, okay. in this area. And you walk in, it'll be like perfectly diverse. You know? And when you go to the orientation, they'll talk about, you know, hey, you know, like this is really important to us. And it is yeah. a way of kind of like flattering the liberal sides of right. wealthy people so that they feel comfortable sending their kids to a school that it, by definition is the most exclusionary thing in the world because it costs $50,000 a year, right. you know? Um, and like, but that's what they want, you know, like mm -hmm. that's what they want. They want the same privileges. They just don't want to feel uncomfortable about it. Right. And that, right, right, so right. the idea but that's, I, but I also do feel like, okay, so what if we had class-based affirmative action and, but it only ever worked for poor white people and the, you know, the entire elite. And well, poor Asians higher, too, yeah. Higher edge. But, but yeah, okay. But, and so, but it was all white or all Asian, right? Yeah. And I mean, that, that would suck. Like we do need to figure out a way to reach different kinds of poor people also. So it's like, <laughs> it is really complicated. 
I think I would be more okay with that than you, but um, not because if there were I, like zero poor black people and zero poor Latinos and poor indigenous people in this. No, that I mean, would be you know, that would be bad. For, that's like, what I mean, right? Like, that would be bad. But I also think that's the current system of affirmative action right now. You know, it's like there aren't really that many poor black kids at Harvard. You know, like that's just sure. true. There, do they sure. exist? Of course they exist. You know, but like, yeah. is it, like everything that you read at, from even students at that school? is that it's extremely hard to find. It's you know? benefiting. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And so um, I don't know. I think that basically what we're doing is we're like eulogizing a system that I think... Zach Cheney Rice in New York Magazine wrote a long piece this, that came out this morning that I thought was pretty good. And it was about like sort of the history of affirmative action and like, mm-hmm. what are we losing? And I think historically what we're losing is a very important program that I think did a lot of good but in its current iteration, when it comes to college admissions, has become sort of warped in a lot of ways, and that is very difficult to defend. And that, um, you know, it's hard to be like, hey, we kind of, you know, like we ended up, like we had to defend this even in its worst iteration, which is like Harvard University. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just kind of decided to not do that anymore, you know, whereas I think 20 years ago they would have, right? Uh, because it it is such a emotionally charged program um but i don't know i don't really have anything else to say about it we can stop i just have I'm one just more structural de- question I'm kind of depressed yeah it is this is depressing but so i'm just gonna ask you something really technical which is like so uh, this the case before the supreme court is a consolidation of two cases one from harvard right. and one that's attacking unc which like right. as a north carolinian yourself like what does that like I'm kind of sick of talking about Harvard too. So like, but what does the UNC part of it look like? Is that just like a tag on because they needed a public university system to attack alongside yeah. Harvard? Okay. So is there any specific meaning for public universities coming out of this litigation? Well, I think they did it so that you couldn't just limit it to Harvard. Do it for private. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, not even right. part. Like there was a decision that could come out. It was just like, hey, Harvard, knock this shit off. And sure, that's it, but, you know, yeah. well, that's yeah. what I like, but now it yeah. can't be so now right? They're because, gotcha. right, right. Gotcha. Because okay. it's a big state system. All right. Um, <sighs> and you know, it was it necessary for them to do that. Probably not. But when they came up with these course cases, they didn't know what the composition of the court was going to be. Sure. Um, and so they probably were trying to cover their bases. The it's a North Carolina case yeah. has a little, yeah, it has a few things, but, mm-hmm. um, that are specific yeah. to it. But uh, I don't know. I don't think it's particularly like I think this, the differentiating between them is something that like uh, it, I would love to read like a Jeannie Sukerson piece about it, you know, <laughs> but it's nothing I personally feel qualified to really talk no, about. Yeah, that and much. I, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, that's good. To, I figured it was just, yeah, strategic things. So. I wonder if Jeannie's sick of about this, too. You know, it's like probably. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it, it's an important case. We need like yeah. a we need like a Korean journalist group text she did write like about that. that um the judge's joke right yeah no i thought that was a good piece so, yeah. yeah yeah and how like the judge is kind of hobnobbing with like the dean of admissions at, at right uh, where was it yeah. it was about like filipino people or something like that right yes. the joke yeah yeah that joke was yeah it wasn't very not funny okay. Yeah, it really wasn't very it's Definitely funny. not okay. <laughs> okay, we were supposed to talk right. about the Trump indictment, but I think we're out of time uh, here. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything to say about the Trump indictment? I, I was just I, like, oh yeah, because now you're now like a political reporter, right? I mean, I don't know. About that. <laughs> I, have, I have like two quick observations about the indictment, which I read. Like, one is the photos in it are insane. Right. 
Right. So, so like one of the photos shows a bunch of boxes on the literal performance stage of Mar-a-Lago where people were having yeah. like dances and events. Yeah. I mean, it's just mind boggling because the contents we now know, although we don't know the specifics are about like the weapon systems of other states. And I mean, things yeah. that are like important. <laughs> and then the only other thing I'll say is like, I guess in honor of Asian American Pacific Heritage Month, the other guy who is indicted besides Trump is like a young guy from Guam. Oh, no. So, like, no. Trump's, yeah, so, like, Trump's military valet is this, like, young guy from Guam who, like, had to do everything Trump told him to do. And oh, so no. this poor guy named Walt oh, is, justice like... For, should we start a justice for justice Walt? For, <laughs> I don't want to go that far, but I do feel like, oh, God, this guy, he's just, like, lying for Trump, moving boxes for Trump. I mean, it's a mess. So, so yeah. Shout out to the people of Guam. I'm sorry that this guy's going through. That'd be an amazing take, uh, you know. Like we're just like Walt was, you know. Walt is the worst. Walt, Walt has been Walt has been railroaded by the system. You know. <laughs> I mean, it does be. I mean, the one thing that's of interest to me because of like you know my obsession with like the military industrial complex in like the Pacific is that we know that people from the Pacific Islands go into the military at extremely, extremely high rates because there are so few jobs and they need the benefits and, you know, and they're also in a, like a straightforwardly colonial situation. So that is the pipeline through which people like Walt enter the military and to then be the aide to the president is a really big deal. But Walt, you really messed up. I know, Walt. Sometimes you gotta learn to say no. Sometimes you gotta say no. (laughs) I'm not gonna move these boxes, Mr. President. Exactly. Um, Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Trump also has like a, I think his head of PR or something like that is like a Korean dude, right? Isn't that true? Really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Or maybe his lawyer or something. McCarthy's right hand man is a Korean guy. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We made it. I wonder if any of them listen to the show. There's one like super (laughs) right wing Korean dude I talk to who listens to the show all the time and then he DMs me his notes. Yeah. Um, Really? Yeah. yeah, It's interesting. interesting. It's been a good conversation for me. Over the years, over I have the maybe, maybe it has been years, you know. To, That's wild. Yeah, to talk to somebody who's very on the right, um, but still listens to our show. If you're out there, okay, if you're listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean that sincerely. We we take all types here on the show. That's true. Um, all right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Next week we're going to go back to having guests and whatever. But um, yeah, we wanted to sort of pause for a little bit and. Let you, you know, be reoriented with your two hosts who work so hard to bring this show to you every <laughs> single week. If you would like to support the show, it's five dollars a month at goodbye.substack.com or time to say goodbye pod. No, no that's the email. Time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or patreon.com slash TTSG pod. Yeah, I don't know. Do we have any other announcements to make? Thank you for everyone to come to the who came to the picnic. picnic. We I have some extra tote bags in Brooklyn, so if you guys want to buy any, I can run them over to New York City. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) my mother-in-law bought a tote bag, which was cool. Um, Yeah, we're we're like I feel like we're in a good space here. Where uh, I don't know, I've been I watched the Spider-Man movie. Oh, I want to see that. Did you take your kid, or is it? Yeah, she didn't like it though. But, you know, she was okay. like, there was not one ounce of humor in that movie. And she said like, that? 
Oh yeah, God. and I was like, first of all, why are you talking like that? Where did you come up with one ounce of heat? Like, where did I know. you she find that like phrase she, she's from? She's like 23. I know, and she generally isn't like that, you know? She's not like somebody who speaks precociously or like an adult, That's you know? So like, it's almost the opposite where it's just like, you know, you got to... If you don't stop this baby talk that you're doing, I'm gonna freak out, you know. But she was like, "Not one ounce of humor in that film." That and is I was like, so bizarre. <laughs> but it was because it was because all the humor is like referential, you know, like self-referential, yeah. and she hasn't seen any of the other Spider-Man. Oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> cute. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, uh, it was. I am writing about it, so you can see you can oh, see okay. my my thoughts on on uh barack obama and spider-man across the across the spider-verse uh on friday I think. Um, okay cool all right i'll talk to you next week tammy Bye. till next week goodbye <laughs>